can you help me with a haiku? I, does it make more sense in Japanese? Do you partly, have any idea? No. Well, partly Japanese. Because haikus a... are all terrible, right? In English. <laughs> I mean, some of them have punchlines. Yeah, joke, are jokes. They're smart, just line, yeah, right? they're some of them jokes. are Some yeah. of them are funny. Not, none of them are funny. Some of them demonstrate wit. Yeah. But it's not enough words. Like, I do you have any idea? Have you studied yeah. this? Like in Japanese, does it somehow make more sense? Part of the yeah. So part of the difference in Japanese is that it's not a so English is a uh, a heavily accented language or have, not. It's it's have, it's a stressed language. Like there's right. stress matters a lot. Right. French and Japanese syllable matters way more than stress. So okay. so you're when you're counting syllables in English. Uh, three of those syllables are going to dominate all the others. And so I see. So it's not satisfying. It doesn't, it doesn't not, It's feel... not satisfying at all. I um, see. Right. So I think probably it's partly that. Probably it's partly that there's a, a visual component because the language at least has some, the written language at least has some genealogical connection to the ideograms of Chinese. And uh, so, and, it, and the calligraphy itself, you know, has have, right. has a beauty, is that, right? Exactly. Right. There's a whole tradition to the the calligraphy itself. Okay, um, that makes yeah. more sense. I mean, as well. and I'm guessing also, I don't know as much about the composition of Japanese diction, but my guess is that <laughs> really, you don't know as much about the composition of Japanese well, no, no, diction no, as you well, do no, no. As of English. Diction. Well, no, but not not even of English, but like of English versus other like versus like Romance languages. Like, like oh, okay. Spanish, for example, is a very small language. Like there just are very few words in Spanish compared right. to English. Like English has way more words than all the rest, and part part of that means that like every word has this very precise. Like every word is a like we have fifty words for boat, and so what we really have is we have fifty different kinds of boat. Um, and in Spanish, you have like barco. <laughs> I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. And uh, thanks in particular to anybody who has recommended this show to a friend or uh, an enemy. I'm grateful in either case, and it makes a big difference. This has been an interesting week. <laughs> I, I have a pizza cooking in the oven, so I'm going to try to keep this quick so I don't burn it uh, or the house down. Uh, so you may have noticed that last week's episode has disappeared from the RSS feed. I pulled it for really personal reasons. Um, uh, and you will have another chance to hear it uh, soon enough if you missed it. Uh, but I'll just say, in case anyone worries that I, I've, I've gone soft, um, that the the whole experience only um, only deepened my conviction that the 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 poetry world comfortable need to be afflicted a little more. So I I'm certainly looking forward to doing more of that. Uh, to which point I, I do have a, an announcement I'm going to be making. Uh, next week. But this week, I thought I would do something a little bit different. So, so part of the whole goal of this dumb podcast from the beginning was both was, was to vent my spleen, to get, get some things off my chest, but also to provide a little bit of catharsis for people. I, you know, I imagined, like myself, have felt uh, 
sometimes a little crazy, a little alienated from uh, the poetry world, the literary world, uh, or have felt like a lot of people uh, are lying or blowing smoke or uh, just full of shit one way or another. And so part of my goal was was not to pick on people, but to give people an opportunity to uh, to feel somewhat vindicated, at least by some uh, jackass recording in his office in the middle of the night while his children are asleep across the hall. So uh, that's been my goal. I'm going to keep trying to do that. But uh, I I also have been, you know, I, I also don't want to, I've, I've, I've tried from the beginning not to lose track of what finally motivates all this, which is that I like, I fucking like the stuff. I like poetry. So I thought just just to shake things up, I would do I would do an episode with just some good things. Just I just have some some good some good news, some good stuff. So uh, start by saying that I I learned about two poets that I won't say I discovered because plenty of other people know about them, but I learned for the first time about two poets I'd never heard of uh, in the past in the past week or two. Uh, one was Alexandra Oliver, who's apparently a a, a bigger deal in Canada than she is here, uh, but she has she so Marianne Corbett did a really excellent review of her new book in the LA Review of Books. I think her book is called Hail the Invisible Watchman, and the excerpt she has in there. I mean, Marianne does some really good writing, but the excerpts from uh, Alexander Oliver's poems are killer, are really killer. So I, I uh, bought the book and. I imagine I will be probably uh, uh, digging into that a little more in episodes to come. Second, I learned about Taylor Bias. I want to say somebody if, that I've met or that I've talked to by way of the the podcast told me about her. Austin maybe told me about her, I, or, or maybe Shane. I can't remember. Somebody somebody told me about her, and I looked her up, and she's extremely. I mean, she's like twenty four, I think. She's really quite good. I think she has a lot of like. I think I think she's she has the potential to get like a whole lot better too. But uh, I read her. She has a chat book called Blood Warm that's very good. I actually think some of her best poems have come out online since that you know was published like a year ago. So I have a, a just an absolute killer of hers that I am going to be reading and talking about in a, in an upcoming episode. So so that uh, that is to come. And then I also owe a. Uh, a, slight, a slight apology to to Eric Smith, long-suffering uh, and brilliant uh, poetry editor and managing editor of the Sewanee Review, um, uh, whom I've given a lot of grief on, uh, on the show. But he, I, I, I teased him about not publishing enough poetry in the Sewanee Review and uh, the most recent issue has a has a, a pretty good deal of poetry. It has a lot of poetry in it. Um, and in particular, it has... Uh, one poem by Matthew Oltzman, who's a poet I have have read and, and admired at times, but also have, have had mixed feelings about. But I think this is quite a good poem. He has, incidentally, Matthew Oltzman has a, a one poem in the Swanee Review, which is excellent, which is a, an honor for anybody to be published in the Swanee Review. <laughs> His wife, <laughs> Vivi Francis, has five poems in the same issue. So I just... I, 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 I like imagining uh, the, the the mood when that copy arrived on the doorstep. But in, in any case, um, so Matthew Oldsman's poem is called The Violin. It is, I would say, it is a piece of rhetoric. 
Like it, it is a poem that is an argument, which is a risky thing for a poem to do. I've written some poems that are pieces of rhetoric that are arguments. I have mixed feelings about them. I have mixed feelings about this, but I do think it 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 transcends the rhetorical frame by the end. But it's a this is an interesting poem. And it is a poem that that it seems initially to be one of those uh, well actually you know nerdy fact poems, which Matthew Altman sometimes right he writes like a lot of. Whoa, cool fact, man! Poems uh, that that, but and so this seems to be one of those. But then it, it takes a turn, and I would say it takes another turn and a half. So this is called the violin. I'm just going to read this real quick and, and maybe say one or two words about it. The violin by Matthew Oldsman, published in the Sewanee Review. God bless you, Eric Smith. <laughs> Upon hearing that Nero played the violin while Rome burned, I ask, when and how could he have ever learned to play that instrument? It is, frankly, an astonishing feat, considering the amount of time he invested in riding chariots, not governing, murdering his mother, yearning to be an actor, the Parthian War, a revolt in the new province of Britain, the annexation of the Bosporan kingdom, midnight parties, building hotels, and so on. It's also impressive because the violin didn't exist and wouldn't be invented for another 1,500 years. That alone would prevent lesser men from learning to coax a song from an instrument's fingerboard and bridge, but not Nero. He pressed his non-existent violin beneath his chin and made it wail above the ashes. Some men are just ahead of their times. That's why, whenever any modern Caesar says don't worry about the plague roiling the streets, I don't. If he boasts about the health of the empire, I raise a glass to celebrate. If he suggests an imaginary horde of barbarians has gathered against us, I sharpen my gladius and rush to the border in the name of freedom. I've learned to recognize our most visionary concertmasters. I've trained myself to embrace the ache of the bow as it moans across the strings and to finally appreciate how every noise inside me is music. So th I mean, this is this is I think, you know, I I'll go out on a limb and say I think this is a political poem. Uh, it, it's, it, I, you know, I initially thought he was he was doing a a, a neat facts man uh, kind of riff on how uh, Nero couldn't possibly have played the violin. Uh, he is doing a little bit of that, but but really he is embodying this voice, which is the voice of someone who who sees through some popular lies, but decides sort of to accept them anyway. And this note, I mean, th this was published long, you know, not long, but but notably before the the fascinating recent Vanity Fair article <laughs> about the the uh, new new reactionary group that that longs for an American Caesar, literally, apparently, I mean, not literally, I mean, in in those terms, uh, but. You know, when he says that's why, whenever any modern Caesar says, "Don't worry about the plague roiling the streets," I don't. I mean, this is, I think, uh, I think this is this is you know clearly a jab at Trump, and and it does seem to be kind of a a riff on on people who would blindly enthusiastically follow Trump. The gladius that he he sharpens and rushes to the border with is, of course, a, a famous uh, Roman um, short sword. But but it's in the end of the poem that I think this becomes. If it ended, 
If the poem ended, if he suggests an imaginary horde of barbarians has gathered against us, I sharpen my gladius and rush to the border in the name of freedom. If the poem ended there, it would be kind of a dumb poem, I think. I mean, it would be it would be clever enough. It would be a tweetable poem. Uh, Oldsman does indulge in rhetoric at times in other poems, but I think I think the fact that there are five more lines makes sort of all the difference in the world here. I've learned to recognize our most visionary concert masters. I've trained myself to embrace the ache of the bow as it moans across the strings and to finally appreciate how every noise inside me is music. Now, he's talking about an imaginary <laughs> violin. He's talking about people who openly lie and who demand that you believe the lie. But this, but this treatment of music doesn't feel totally satirical. It doesn't feel totally ironic. I've trained myself to embrace the ache of the bow as it moans across the strings. That's not irony. That's not a sarcastic embrace. I mean, that's that's pathos. And to finally appreciate how every noise inside me is music. Now, it's obviously insane to believe that every noise inside you is music, but that kind of what Daniel Dennett might call a deepity, that kind of conviction, that kind of self-affirmation is one that the right has no monopoly on. I mean, that that could well be a line from a satire of a progressive point of view. And, and so it leaves me a little bit uncertain of where we all stand. It, it you know, I, I start the poem feeling quite uh, clear about whom we're satirizing and uh, what good smart side we're on. But by the end, I don't know that Matthew Oldsman is any longer leaving himself off the hook. I think we all may be on the hook by the end, uh, which is what I which is what I really want from any good poem. And I think this is one. So this is the violin by Matthew Oldsman in the Swanee Review. Oh, one more piece of housekeeping I've got to, uh, I've got to, to take care of. Shane uh, Gray, I mean, truly like hours after I posted uh, last week's episode, in which, uh, among other things, I, I say that the, the NEA is not very concerned with the art of its applicants and fellows. It's more concerned with the red tape that the, that constitutes their elaborate applications and all of the artist statements and theses and proposals and community connections and letters of recommendation, whatever other bullshit that is involved in the application other than uh, portfolio. Having said that about the NEA, uh, I then was sort of not that surprised to hear from Shane, who is always both like super prompt and exacting in his responses to the show, but also like endlessly patient and generous. So uh, thank you again, Shane, for, for writing this note. He just said, having won an NEA, which he has. I mean, that's the, that's the problem with, with like bad-mouthing any prize or any honor in poetry today is that Shane's won it. Like whatever it is, Shane has won it. And uh, I'll, I'll say, I think, He's, in some ways, he is the exception that proves the rule. If there is a prize in poetry that might come up on this show, like two things are probably 
you can probably count on. One is that Shane has won that prize. And two is that he's one of the few people who really genuinely deserved it. But uh, all right, I, I digress. Having won an NEA, said Shane, I can tell you they use the work submitted when they are trying to talk to people and organizations about the value of the work the NEA does. As in, look at this art which you will presumably like or at least think is worthwhile. Support us because we help such things come into being. And I've had people at the NEA write to me with unnecessary, even irrelevant enthusiasm about my poems. So the portfolio seems to matter to somebody. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I do think that maybe uh, the NEA could could still stand to take some advice, not from me, uh, it is a the perennial idiot, but from Alice, who in a, a recent episode of Poetry says. Uh, made the, the very simple request of a similar organization in Australia. She said, whatever else you do, however else you think about your prizes and the money you get and how much money goes where, one there's one thing you could do that would definitely help artists out, that would definitely make the whole process better. And that is simplifying things. Just make it a little bit easier to apply. So I will pass that advice on to the NEA. Uh <laughs> As usual, like the best part of this show is stuff that other people say that I then quote. So thank you, Shane. Thank you, Alice. And then for the the main segment this week, I had I there. I really am always really nervous about doing gushy episodes where I just uh, where I just go on at length about some writing I like, but. Uh, Brian and I talked recently about two really wonderful pieces of writing. One is the short story, A Little Cloud by James Joyce, which is a short story about a failed poet. And the other is the poem, uh, Minute 40, which is, which is also about failure and maybe failed poets in its way. Uh, really, both really wonderful. And we, we ended up having like a pretty fun conversation about both of them. So I'm just going to, um, I'm going to get to that. Uh, oh, real quickly. We do mention a couple times, uh, IFP. I, I can't, I don't think we end up defining it in the course of the episode, but IFP is, uh, was introduction to fiction and poetry. And it was a course for freshmen that Brian and I both taught when we were in grad school. <laughs> point was like how arbitrary an introduction to fiction and poetry (laughs) could get you know like like insofar as literally anything could be an introduction to fiction and poetry it might as well be these texts like (laughs) like a lot by eudora welty and like very little by anybody else you know and like uh do you remember that that short memoir piece by I think Seamus Heaney um, about Omphalos? Or oh God, I don't, yeah. The I, I just remember it being like, and this is a class that many people took as a as a distribution requirement. So they were, they all they were just going to be doctors when they grew up. Like that's right, why they yeah. went to Johns Hopkins. That was the entire plan. That was the entire idea. And they're like, let let us just have a taste of what fiction is, and and what that taste is. Is just like plotless uh, southern meandering, and like the most Irish text that you need to like look up every six words. Digging is is a metaphor for life in some way that like only works if you've been raised like l- 
literally digging the Irish soil, you know, right. otherwise like any other soil wouldn't, oh, wouldn't give that same impression. But yeah, no, we, we asked a lot of, of those, uh, of those students. Yeah. What a terrible Strange. way to approach, Strange. right? Just punishing, just like you fool for thinking that maybe that yeah. was part of it. It was like, Never again will this be considered an easy A course. Right. <laughs> but then we all gave A's to everybody. Right. right. Of course, because it was still was an easy A course. Why it was wouldn't just, we? You know. I, but you remember we had to grade the assignments. So these oh, poor, God. like, freshman pre-med types, we forced them to write uh, uh, sonnets, right, with meter and with, and we're like, we're, you know, I, I B plus, like, this doesn't scan and it's emotionally irrelevant. Like, I just don't. I remember I it was so sad sad I just oh, they didn't God. my strategy for that uh my brilliant my brilliant insight to the grading uh the, the the misery of grading like freshman poems and stories was to grade them all out of 15 points so <laughs> so it would be harder to do the math in their heads when I initially passed out the paper and you would physically run out of the classroom <laughs> exactly. before, they could, before they could figure out that go that evenly 13 out of 15 right? wasn't yeah. what they were aiming for Shall we do some Joyce and some justice? Yeah. Um, let's start with the Joyce and see where the justice gets us. I realized like there was, I, I, I went on a long walk with Echo this morning and I memorized the justice poem so I could like think about it while I was walking. And I, it occurred to me at, toward the end of my walk after I'd had all these wonderful thoughts that like there was a risk of this podcast becoming like 90% of poetry podcasts are just like somebody reads a poem and then hums and says, oh, and then like the other, the rest of the pod, poetry podcasts are either like people interviewing poets and saying, great, now I hope you will blurt my book or uh, just talking about poems that, like the way 14 year old boys talk about supermodels. And so I, I realized like I don't want to do that, but um, but it is, I think it is a good poem. We can talk no, about I have, it. I have questions yeah. and stuff to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, well, yeah, well you, so you tell me, well, how would you, what you're, yeah. I'm a, yeah, let's start with the, I, I think, let's start with the, the Joyce yeah. um, and then we'll go to the justice. Yeah, a little cloud, which we did not teach in IFP, which I falsely. Well, you learned. you might have taught in IFP. Oh, right, yeah, I, mean, I have taught, but in in any case, when I taught it in IFP, and when I taught it in high school, and when I taught it the other week to my adult students, the response from all around was meh. Yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say, I I can't imagine students liking this very much. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on why you keep on teaching it to to students and why it uh, would be interesting to anybody who isn't a a failed uh, poet or, or writer. <laughs> um, so what what do you think, what do you think it's, a, what what is its intrinsic value? Do you want to summarize it first? Should you say more or less sure. what the story's about? Because it's a relatively quick summary. Sure, yeah. So, so little Chandler, as this guy who's been living in Dublin, his friend Gallagher left eight years earlier to go make his way in the world. He became kind of a, a sort of a star in the London press as a journalist. Little Chandler is working an office job, doing some kind of writing that is not that kind of writing. Uh, Gallagher comes back to town, invites Little Chandler out for a drink. He goes to meet him. They talk about Gallagher's exciting life, and it reflects somewhat on Chandler's small life with a wife and kid and a boring office job. And then he, they have a kind of an abortive invitation. Maybe next time we'll go have dinner, but not this time. Little Chandler goes home. Uh, his, he's, he forgot some errands. He got a little too drunk and his wife left him with a kid and he tries to think about a poem and then the baby cries and he feels uh, sorrow and despair when the baby's crying and his wife comes home and hates him. Yeah, right. And and he sort of hates his wife a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of resentment toward the wife yeah. for not being 
<laughs> not being one of Gallagher's imagined the rich, rich Jewesses. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what about this? Do you keep on returning to because you you've taught it a whole bunch of times you brought <laughs> Always it as the story from right from from dubliners it's not typically the story that that people remember and want to discuss on podcasts from dubliners so what do you think about it um rings your bell uh i think it's just one of those stories where where like every paragraph and sentence i read it just it rings so true it's so consistently funny start to finish it's it's so humiliating in its treatment of Chandler, but in a way that feels weirdly completely fair. Uh, totally. Throughout. So that that hits me for the first time in this <laughs> in this paragraph. He remembered the books of poetry upon his shelves at home. He had bought them in his bachelor days. Again, we're not talking about like like big game hunting trophies, right? We're talking about books, <laughs> books of poetry. Of but he had bought them in his bachelor days. And many an evening, as he sat in his little room off the hall, he had been tempted to take one down from the bookshelf and read something out to his wife. But shyness had always held him back. So it's the, the idea that like like his biggest, like um, what is it? His, his biggest, you know, a, a, fantasy is <laughs> taking uh, taking one of his books of poems down and reading a book uh, one of the poems to his wife right. but he's too shy he can't do that. he couldn't do that which which that. when i used to teach this as a bachelor i would think like i would i would say to my students like how how like how much how pitiful this is and how like he can't even like this wife the person he's most intimate with in the world he can't even like take a book yep. of shell, po except but then, now could you imagine now like yeah like imagined like alex has just come home from work she's, she's like taking a man yeah. on the on the on the couch with her laptop and he's like wait 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 alex, hold, alex, wait, wait, alex what you're doing. i don't wait no kids kids go to your room kids i have something to talk to to, to your mother about honey Honey, I've got my my Norton anthology here. Put I put down your laptop. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna, no, I know you're hungry. No, the, the you could the glass of wine can wait. Let me. I am gonna read. Yeah. No, I would be too timid to do that. I would be Purse too timid. by Robinson Jeffers. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. I mean that that's why the the story the story does work because it's both like this guy, Little Chandler, is the most pathetic man in the world and he is all of us and i think that right. that is a a a wonderful um yeah encapsulation why it's a great story and your students haven't yet reached the point in their life to, to except the, except the adult ones have like the like the the, the 65 year old was like no nah, i didn't really see much in this uh yeah I, I don't but does it also have something to do with the fact that with being a writer yeah like the the could he write something original? So he never, when he, when he talks about writing, he never yeah. talks, like he never gives examples. He never has any actual ideas. He just has like feelings or attitudes. Well, he so does do some writing, he, but the only writing he does is of potential blurbs for his non-existent book. Except for his own book of his own collection of, <laughs> of poems that he's unable to write. Yeah. Could he write something original? He was not sure what idea he wished to express, but the thought that a poetic moment had touched him took life within him like an infant hope. He stepped onward bravely. He weigh, He tried to weigh his soul to see if it was a poet's soul. I, I know. My heart. I know. He and that's after about, he was like, not so old. Thirty-two. Not, <laughs> that which I also I also think like the other line I love from the dead is. Uh, um, I can't remember Gabriel's last name, but like Gabriel uh, O'Clarahan was a young man of forty-five. Is the yep. line of the yep. Yeah, no, it's it is. 
He was not so old, 32. His temperament might be said to be just at the point of maturity. There were so many different moods and impressions that he wished to express in verse. <laughs> he felt them within him. He tried to weigh, as you just read, his soul to see if it was a poet's soul. And that to me is something that I, I remember feeling when I was 16. God, yeah. Like the like there's so much I'm bursting with emotions. <laughs> I don't really know what they are. I but I would love to be the sort of person to articulate those emotions. I am I the sort of person who can do that? Uh <laughs> And it's but then he spends most of his time thinking about his blurbs and thinking about uh, perhaps it would be better to insert his mother's name before. The, it was a pity his name was not more Irish looking. And he imagines he would for, actually it wouldn't be he wouldn't say Thomas Malone. He would he would be T Malone Chandler would be the way <laughs> the way to present his name. Which like I fucking did. I put my fucking middle name in my book too. It sounds like know, less I of know. a pseudonym. And his plan is he would speak to Gallagher about it. Like he I, had a he had an idea. Like let's see if this is the kind of thing that that'll work. And that's um, and that's part of where you see like his his genuine feeling of like excitement and pride. Like, yes, he's gonna go see Gallagher, and Gallagher's a real like a real deal. So how do you read Gallagher in this story? Is uh, because the, little Chandler has different attitudes toward him depending on how. Yeah excited or drunk or sad little Chandler is. But how how does Joyce want us to see uh, Gallagher? Is, is Gallagher a, I think we are meant to read him as a pompous jackass who we whom little Chandler is mistakenly looking up to. Is that too simple? Is it? Is I that think it's too... too complex. I think he's, I think he is. I think he's a sad prick, but I also think like, like, and I, I was also just like struck in by how smart a choice it is that the very first thing Gallagher does, he's like, clearly like Gallagher spends like most of their conversation big dogging Thomas Chandler or little Chandler and telling him about, you know, you've never been anywhere but the Isle of Man. <laughs> like you should go to the whorehouses in Paris, you pussy. <laughs> um, but he, but, but he like, and, and like how, you know, Chandler's never really done anything. And Chandler tries to kind of like do something similar about like, well, you'll get married one of these days. And Gallagher like has this sort of grotesque monologue about how he's just going to marry for money. And he has this, he like, he starts to, he, his, the, the, the seams start to show and he's like, my, hundreds my of Jewesses wouldn't. Wealthy Jewesses <laughs> will throw themselves at me. My favorite line about him talking about Paris is, they're lively, if you like. It gets lively when the coquettes begin to let themselves loose. And then he, he doesn't let it just go. He, he questions the little channel. He goes, yeah. you know what they are, I suppose, meaning the coquettes, which is just right. like a French ladies. Well, you know, co co coquettes, I, mean, I think, is, is prostitutes. They're prostitutes, right. Yeah, but yeah. but they... they Oh, cuts right. It's impressive, yeah, yeah. but he's little Chandler. Clearly, has no idea and doesn't want to admit that he has no idea. So he goes, um, "I've heard of them," and then, uh, as as he say, "You may go if you like." There's no woman like the Parisienne for style, for go. Then it's an immoral city," said little Chandler. "I mean, compared to London, London said is neither of them know anything." Ne well, you're right. So I think like Gallagher is def definitely a blowhard. He's definitely a prick. He's definitely uh, trying to uh, show up Chandler, which also like the other question I have throughout this whole story is like, why did he invite Chandler out? Like, why did he invite him out? And, par and like partly because his, his it seems like his enduring memory of Chandler is of disapproving of him because he says like, you haven't, you, you're always lecturing me to go to church and be right. pious, right? I mean, I assume the um, reason he sees him is to demonstrate that he's made a success for himself. As, as a way to say, yeah. you, you always thought you were better than me, but now I'm back and I'm right. So, so I think, and yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think probably, I think probably, if the story were told from Gallagher's perspective, then like he really, really need. He probably is like 
the man at the bottom of the totem pole in London and gets shit on as like the Irish piece of shit. And, and right, like he, right. he needs to come home in order to right. be you with his or, obnoxious orange tie to, to be right. To be uh, the, the, right. the he's dressed dog. like a clown. <laughs> yeah. And he looks right. he's like he's, a, a, he has like a ghastly <laughs> pallor and these bright blue eyes pale, and spinning hair. Pale, right. sickly like, yeah. face. <laughs> yeah. It's a, he Twins, is, there's, yeah. I mean, again, is, is a, a move I wouldn't have made as a writer here. If I were, I wouldn't have thought of it, but the idea of making Gallagher a dress like a clown with like a sickly, sad, mean, it's a, it's funnier that way. It's, yeah. it makes it Vivid just like all coming. more sadder. But you were, I think, earlier going to compliment Joyce on making Gallagher kind when they first no. meet. No, well, no, no, not on making him kind, but I think like it's a, it's a perceptive move that he gives Gallagher as the first move and like what clearly Gallagher needs to demonstrate his superiority to Chandler. The very first thing he does is say, um, well, and how have you been pulling along since I saw you last? Dear God, how old we're getting. Uh, do you see any signs of aging in me? A eh? a little gray, a little a little gray and thin on the top. What? Ignatius Gallagher took off his hat and displayed a large, <laughs> closely cropped head. His face was heavy, pale, and clean shaven. His eyes, which were of bluish slate color, uh, relieved his unhealthy pallor and shone out plainly above the vivid orange tie he wore. Between these, so he goes, but then he says, "Little, um, uh, what's the the gesture I love?" He says, "Oh, he bent his head and felt with two sympathetic fingers the thin hair at his crown." So the first thing he does. Is he, he says, look how old I, I am. And he shows off his bald spot. And it's part, like, it, it's a, it's the kind of humility you can show when you're in a position of power. Right. Right. And so it's right. the very first thing he does, which I, I think is really smart and perceptive. And I think, yeah, there's a version of the story that is told from Gallagher's perspective, which would be equally delightful and very different. But, but I think it's actually kind of important that we don't come away at the end of this story feeling like, Ah, well, at the beginning of the story, we thought Gallagher had really got on. But at the end of the story, it turns out they're right. all just failures in their own way. No, like Gallagher genuinely is a success. We know that. Right. never will be, right? right? And we don't right. get relieved of that feeling of imbalance. by the Like Chandler's failure and his feeling of being trapped. He thinks of himself as being in a prison with the poor baby. Like clearly some of some of this is like a little bit irrational and he's a little drunk and he's and like he's reading a very bad poem by Byron at the end and he like yeah. wishes he could concentrate on it. It's a really not a good poem. Uh, but I think he like it would be a lesser story if we if it were all fair in the end. Right. If Gallagher were, were totally put in his place just as much as Chandler is. For sure. And I in mixing up um, Dubliner's stories forgot whether this was the story where little Chandler falls apart and cries at the end. Yes. Or if, if this is the story where he like beats the shit out of his family. And it's, oh, it's not that. Story. I haven't read that story. That's a different a story, story where little Chandler beats the shit out of his no, family. No, it's not little Chandler. It's oh, another, another guy, guy. who okay, is little right. Chandler in okay, his story. Okay. Yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. mistreated throughout right, yeah, the day, yeah, yeah. you know, by no. other characters and Dubliners. No. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even burst into tears. It's sadder than that. He's, Little Chandler felt his cheeks suffused with shame, and he stood back out of the lamplight. He listened while the, with, while the paroxysm of the child sobbing grew less and less, and tears of remorse started to his eyes. Even his like his his breakdown yeah, at the end is like cry right. pitifully I, Little Chandler esque. I he counted seven sobs. This is of the baby uh, without a break between them, and caught the child to his bosom in fright. If it died, exclamation point! <laughs> and I think the implication is like his wife would be so pissed. <laughs> You'd like, be such a deep. Shit oh man, will I be in trouble? 
<laughs> if my son died. Like, it's yeah. literally the 20 minutes all day that I'm responsible for him. And that's when he's going to die. Like, yeah. that'd be typical little Chandler. <laughs> right. I love later. She, she storms and she says, what have you done to him? She cried, glaring into his face. Little Chandler sustained for one moment the gaze of her eyes and his heart closed together as he met the hatred in them. <laughs> And the fact that Joyce makes him even be little Chandler at home holding his own baby. Like, he's not little Chandler. He's Chandler. He's Chandler. But like, but, but it is. Little Chandler is, uh, is in his house, not able to do not able to do anything. He can't talk to his wife, whom he hates. And he just, like, I, I feel like the, the highlight but, but he, of the but story. He, he feels her hatred of him more than he hates her, I think. Oh, totally. He would yeah. love to love her. He's <laughs> just in a situation where, I mean, his his happiest memory is when he spent way too much money on a shirt for her. And she <laughs> yelled at him for spending all that money on the shirt. But then she kind of liked the shirt. Like, right. that's his, I think that's the best moment of, of his life yeah but but it's described he's how he had suffered that day waiting at the shop door until this is just he has money he has plenty of money to go buy clothes <laughs> for his wife he's waiting until the shop was empty standing at the counter and trying to appear at ease while the girl piled ladies blouses in before him paying at the desk and forgetting to take up the odd penny of his change being called back by the cashier and finally <laughs> striving to hide his blushes as he left the shop by examining the parcel to see if it was securely tied that that last line is so good where it's <laughs> it's trying. the he's trying to distract himself from being so ashamed of successfully buying clothes at a clothes store that he's like extra focused on the knot that the lady made to make this, sure that the yeah, knot, does this knot <laughs> yeah, yeah, looks, looks like yeah it looks like it will hold shape to me <laughs> No, it's, it's 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 so so. My question, um, and it may be that that it just doesn't matter because it's so good and funny and on the like, it hits the nail on the head. But the story, the, like the 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 corruption I use from the Seder supper for talking about stories is why is tonight different from every other night? Like why, if you're going to write a story about a guy in a day, why is it this got this day in his life? Like what right. happens on this? And like there are right. stories like the dead or. Araby where like clearly it's a transformative day like it matters that this was the day and something he's not going to be the same guy afterward I'm not totally sure with Chandler if this day is going to be different than the next like it's a big day because Gallagher comes back to town but I can't tell if he's much changed by the end I read um Dubliners through this story um in in prep for this conversation this is probably story number seven or eight and just like looking at it like the first story, the guy's mentor dies. So he's not gonna, that's the sisters. That after that, he's not gonna be the same. Mm -hmm. The second story, um, the main character is goes on a on a small trip. He skips school for the first time and he meets a guy who jerks off in front of him. And like that is his first yeah. you know, interaction with sexuality. And that's right. and that's gonna be like any, you know, he's gonna change after that experience. The third story is Araby, where he has a crush and he goes and he stays out late and he goes to a you know this fair to to buy something for um for this crush of his in that moment of not being able to you know is he's going to remember the rest for the rest of his life um eveline even more than the rest of them is about someone who has been proposed to who is getting ready to leave her small town um mm -hmm. in Ireland um, goes all the way to the point of packing, of not telling her alcoholic father whom she's taking care of that she is going to leave him and abandon him essentially, goes to the boatyard and at the very last moment does not get on the boat. Uh, so all these stories are really like 
epiphanic moments that change the, the, the course of these people's lives it, until a little cloud. Um, yeah. And I, I think that the answer can't be that this is the exception that proves the rule. I, I, I think it has to be what about this day yeah. does change the, the course of his life. And maybe up until this day, he had hope that he would be a poet of some kind. And this is the day that crushes it for him. That, yeah. you know, uh, 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 today, you know, he's still fantasizing about reading poetry to his wife. He's still thinking of himself as more than just the clerk that he is. He has these questions he's going to ask little Chandler. I mean, Gallagher, he has, you know, the blurbs in his mm -hmm. mind. He has this poetic spirit. He has all of that. And then he goes for drinks. It's an unsatisfying experience. He comes home. He can't even read poetry alone by himself. He can't father his own kid. He can't be a husband to his wife. And the story ends. And I, I think yeah. that maybe yeah. the last ounce of potential has been sucked out of them. And that's why this day matters, you know, unlike the previous 50 days of similar disappointment and failure. The situation hasn't changed, but his pipe dream is gone by the end. Like, right. he was not, nothing was going to happen differently, but he vaguely believed something might happen. He gives up hope. And I think thing. that part of self-definition in little Chandler is that he, he might have a poetic, um, you know, soul or spirit right. within him. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that, yeah, he's small and he, you know, his wife has unkind eyes and he can't take care of his kid, but like, maybe there's some poetry in me. And I think that the, the, the change from beginning to end of this story is not as obviously dramatic or profound, but it's the moment where he settles into his, passive horrible existence that he doesn't have that in him and he comes to terms with that and falls apart yeah yeah part of me reading the story i always thought that like this was like the kid in araby if he had never had the experience of araby because at the end of that story he's like he feels himself it's some like a cosmic vision of himself like there's like a right. creature yeah see if you can read the, like the last sentence or so of araby because it, it feels like the, the the epiphany that little chandler never had as a kid or never had as a until his, he was 32. so at this point in araby he's looking for a present to uh to purchase for this girl with whom he's in love and he's a teenager he's he's young um a young teenager going to this big fair but he gets there too late because his uncle doesn't remember that he wants to go but he has his money i lingered before her stall meaning one of the stalls that are open because most of them are closed though i knew my stay was useless to make my interest in her wares seemed the more real then i turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar i allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket i heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out the upper part of the hall was now completely dark Gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. Yeah, a creature driven and derided by vanity. Yeah, yeah that's, oh, God. And it feels so like he, that never quite struck home for Little Chandler until maybe. Right, like the, the, the profundity of that moment in um, Araby is intense enough to drive the protagonist of that story into some new direction whether right. yeah you know like less vanity or more you know who, who knows in the long run but but that character could more be a, a stephen dedalus character you know that that yeah. shows that, up like in, no like Air, the kid in Airby could become joyce right right but, exactly but little dedalus chandler is like a, is joyce right little chandler yeah. is exactly yeah, yeah exactly and i think that that's the that's the big moment and i think that that's why Araby is read more often because it, it fits in the trajectory of the kid in Araby to um, Stephen Dedalus to 
Joyce, you know, himself, whereas this is a standalone sad story about the other direction, which is somebody who hangs on. Like I, so you're identifying a couple of things. You're identifying both why I love it and why my students hate it. Uh, I think that's right. It's hopeless. Yes. It's somebody (laughs) who begins the story with a little bit of hope and then loses that hope. It just has a, just, just pinched out of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I love that. Which is a gutsy story to write, especially in this mode, which isn't a comic mode, but it's sort of a, it's pretty funny. So it's... <laughs> realist that it yeah. comedy is drawn from it. You know, it's not a farce where, Oh no. Yeah. Except his realistic. name is little yeah. Chandler. So it's, it, <laughs> he is playing with, you know, it, it's, yeah. he's mocking the guy, but he's mocking him the way his friend would mock him. He's not mocking him from, from right. on high. No, it, fe- it feels like a plausible form of mockery, right? right? The same way that, like, despite all of the craziness in the show, Big Pussy felt like a plausible nickname for a gangster in The Sopranos. So Totally. And yeah. also in the sim- same way that Little Chandler um, is repeated over and over again until <laughs> it just becomes his name. You forget Big you Pussy know, yeah. is just, it, it, it becomes the sounds that make up <laughs> yeah. his name. You don't think Big, Big <laughs> Pussy is the craziest nickname in the whole world, right. you know? Yeah. There's one episode in The Sopranos where it's like, yeah, there was a little pussy and then the big pussy. And that's why it makes sense. But like even that explanation makes no sense. Like right, why are there two pussies? <laughs> right, yeah. And like, then therefore one big, one little. But it is, if you just repeat a nickname long enough, it's, it just sounds like somebody's name. So then similarly, the other question I have about the story, which like, again, in- intuitively makes plenty of sense, but I can't come up with any explanation for is the title. Like it, it's, it's kind of like little, a little cloud is kind of like a little Chandler and it's, and it's, it's sort of pitiful and cute and like pass like, but it doesn't, like it, it feels right, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it means. I know it doesn't mean anything. And also if, if it were me, like that sort of accidental rhyme or repetition of word should great, right? right. Like, like the idea of naming your main character, <laughs> Little Chandler, and then naming the title of your story, uh, A Little Cloud. Like, little is in both, but it doesn't really line up. And <laughs> there are no other mentions of clouds or, and it's not the little cloud. So I don't, no. I have no, I have no idea. But I, a, have no but I, idea. Think, I actually think that A is so much better than V. Because it's like it's softer totally... and sadder. Wait, it's, like it's, to, it's also like, it's, it's not like this is the one time. It's like, this right. is like one of many, one of, right. one of an innumerable quantity. Of a little, little clouds, a little cloud, <laughs> but also, like, like, there's no vernacular. Like, it's not like we talk about a little cloud. Like, it's, it's is, not. May, so, may, why wonder is that if there expr- is, an, is, is there an I Irish, there's an expression? Old Irish expression? I would that see that's that, that's actually the most plausible right. explanation. Suddenly, we both right. I know we're both googling, and the problem is slang. That the, Oh, did you find it? No, no, maybe not. I, I was going to say that the, the problem is that the, the, ex, the existence of the story is going to uh, is going to is going to drown out any possibility of us finding any reference to an actual meaning. I don't know. Maybe so. If if you if you are listening and you know this from Peter, Ireland, from Ireland, yeah. Well, and Peter Vertasnik seemed to recognize the reference right away and know Dubliners pretty well. Maybe he'll know. He seems well well informed. Yeah, ask that guy. Is yeah. he one of the like four identical guests whom you've had over the last um, <laughs> month or so? <laughs> Is he was he like a a, a staid white man who had like some stuff to say about poetry that you mostly agreed with? 
Was uh, he one of those guys? <laughs> I didn't bother learning their names, but I, I listened to all. I listened to all four of those episodes, and all of those four very different men had uh, had very <laughs> very fascinating perspectives on uh, on formalism and structure and poetry. Really, really, uh, they really stood out one one from the next. I'm really happy to have spent all those time uh, trying to differentiate their identical opinions from from one another oh they strongly uh, disagreed with an article in the la review of books let's uh let's hear let's hear more about that oh man i just realized that i have a i have an interview you have another one middle-aged white man about, middle -aged an, about white an article man? in the la review <laughs> books that i haven't put out yet uh I have a I have something that sounds like a feels like a very strong opinion to myself that any listener to will just think of as like a boring one sim sentence idea. But you're I oh let me next up on Sleerick, it's a middle aged white man has a very strong opinion on an essay from the LA Review of Books about whether structure is important to verse. I can't wait for that episode. Yes. Uh <laughs> God damn it. Um so Donald Justice wrote this poem, Men at yeah. 40. Is there a direct connection to a little cloud here other than the fact? Actually, I, I shouldn't say other than the fact because that's that's leading the witness. Right. I see I see a connection or two, but I would love to hear whether it's just a poem you like, so you wanted to read it on your show because you're allowed to, or do you feel it is uh, connected to a little cloud in ways that, that it seemed to be to me? Yeah, I think it has some connection to a little cloud. I don't think it's important and i think like the part of what i really disliked about about the initial ifp syllabus that we were given was that it was constantly pairing essays and stories and poems that had somewhat similar themes and that seems like an incredibly boring way to teach writing so i would never right. want it's, to it's, pair this with a little cloud right. as a teacher Right, it's puzzle solving as teaching oh, God, or something, yeah. where it's like, what's the right answer? They both talk about innocence, you know, like you, you see it, especially like, in my eighth graders. Oh my God. When they, I, I try never to ask a question for which there is one right answer, you right. know, because yeah, otherwise yeah. it feels like math to the students and their eyes get like anxious and they try to, um, the father wants to know where the son hid the bicycle you know i'm like well that's not really what we're talking about here um <laughs> why did i ask but, you this yeah why like i did ask what the father wants to know and that is the answer <laughs> but like why why are we spending our time with this um you should just one of those days you should just quit your job upon receiving the answer from your kids <laughs> that's it i'm done <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you i'm out all right we're we're fletch uh, you're in charge <laughs> yeah. um and so, to clarify because i would have with my homophonic ear heard uh the title as m-i-n-u-t-e-f-o-r-t-y as in it was like as if it were a story about a minute 40 about as like, like to the, the, the minute minutes. 40 of a basketball game right yeah. sorry men yeah. at 40 men yeah. at 40 yeah my daughter uh, justice. read it for us yeah men at 40. Well, you probably don't even need to read it. it's probably existing inside your brain it is but i'll read it to make sure i don't fuck it up men at 40 wait wait wait, wait. is this the first poem that you and i have ever discussed yes. together this was this was the my elaborate trick to get you to talk about a poem on air, which has oh. never happened before. Oh, I gotta, I got, I gotta put on my poetry clothes. <laughs> well, I did. I gotta, so I have a follow up question about one, our, one of our early exchanges about poetry. But I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll read the. I'll read okay, the but no, no, no. Now I'm ready. Now I gotta. This okay, is gonna be. Here we go. All right, good. Um, got my boots right. on. 
got my digging my digging shoes i got my shovel ready <laughs> ready my to... finger and my thumb there so, you go squat mic rests yeah all right minute 40. <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> she was actually a good poet which you would never know if you had taken the ifp course that we were getting. no no it's only his terrible poems oh. that, that we read i liked his translation of the uh, gilgamesh no is that what he translated he probably he was a pretty prolific translator yeah, i actually liked, I liked digging it. but i didn't like it when i taught it in that class yeah exactly yeah. exactly because <laughs> we we surrounded it by so oh, much God. ephemera and hideous hard work that yeah. that the poem itself becomes unreadable men at 40 men by at donald 40. justice read by donald matthew justice. by by m buckley smith that's <laughs> really uh, forward the the irish middle name men at 40 learn to close softly the doors to rooms they will not be coming back to at rest on a stair landing they feel it moving beneath them now like the deck of a ship though the swell is gentle and deep in mirrors, they rediscover the face of the boy as he practices tying his father's tie there in secret. And the face of that father, still warm with the mystery of lather. They are more fathers than sons themselves now. Something is filling them. Something that is like the twilight sound of the crickets, immense filling the woods at the foot of the slope behind their mortgaged houses. So, well, since you've never talked about a poem on the show, why don't you have a word? And then I have too many words, so I'll try to restrain sure myself. So I think this poem is great. I, I really, I think it's funny and smart. I think that as a 41-year-old man, I think I might be, I think I'm 41, um, rings true, you know, uh, men at 40 learn to close softly. I think that that initial almost rhyme is sort of jarring in a, in a successful way. It gets you paying attention. Um, and that's something that the line breaks help the, the door to rooms. They will not be coming back to that is so obviously a metaphor that I like it that like, I don't, I don't need to, to play with like whether something is, you know, standing in for something else. Like it's clear that at 40, there's some stuff you, you don't do anymore, right? And yeah. that's, I think, a, a, a fun way to, to start a poem about a 40-year-old. Second stanza confuses me. Yep. Um, at rest on a stair landing, they feel it moving. Beneath them now, like the deck of a ship, uh, though the swell is gentle. So they feel it moving is weird to me. The they refers, the antecedent there is clear. It's the men at 40. It is odd the only thing it could refer to is stair landing but then why are we spending time actually talking about men on a stair landing feeling it rocking back and forth is that like they're old now i i i, I am curious what you have to say my only possible answer to that is it makes that final punchline hit home more because the the mortgaged house described as a mortgaged house when you don't need a reminder of that house's existence, the physicality of the real house, if you have that second stanza of like a man trying to keep his sea legs, you know, land legs straight, like balancing in the house itself. Yeah. Um, and then seeing a guy in the mirror, you know, half a kid and half a grown up like that, that's a powerful image. And I think that one that we've we've all had at our age, especially at our age, where 
I do see my son's face in my face and my father's face in my face. This is something I wonder about because uh, you're, so you, I, I don't miss having boy children. The one thing I'm very aware of not be like not experiencing as a father who doesn't have boys is that sort of poignant recognition of myself. I do obviously recognize a lot of myself and my daughters and I've recognized a lot of childhood, but I think there's enough of a significant difference there that yeah, I don't, I, I I don't agree see myself that. in that direct way that I wonder about you with your boys. Yeah. So I, um, I wish I had had girls instead of boys. I'm uh, so I, glad I, I don't recognize myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find that, that I was thinking about this the other day as I was screaming at my kids. I, I think that I am, it's not, it's not a, 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 an original thought, but it's definitely true for me that I am at my most vicious towards my kids when I see what I dislike oh, most yeah. in myself and them. Totally, yeah. And I think that that comes across um, more because they have more you know, similar experiences than, than they would if they were girls, whether it's yeah. physical or athletic or, or otherwise. And I, it's when, when I see Owen trying to be funny in moments that aren't um, appropriate, oh, God, um, that's gotta be. I, it's when I feel, I, I know that in myself and I hate that I do that in myself. And it's when I feel weakest and most pathetic, most pathetic. And I, I really like the other day I found myself saying like, I don't think you know what a joke is. Like, did you think that this was an appropriate situation for someone to laugh in? Did you think that the thing you just said was going to make me laugh? Because if not, that's not a joke. And I don't know why you said that. And then oh, I walked out of the room and I'm like, what the fuck did I just like, my kids ate and he said a joke. Like, I don't like, that is just me screaming at myself. And I, I, I am trying yeah, like so I like I, I I don't have that that's not the thing with my kids but like I know that feeling I know that like god damn yeah, it why don't you pay I, it? like she's yeah, trying to like, talk to you yeah exactly yeah and I I mean it's it, 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 that example it, most directly made me realize like whoa like this is not good parenting like I have to be way more <laughs> more aware of of that but absolutely I mean they they are more their fathers than their sons I mean they are more fathers than sons themselves now that is certainly true both in my relationship with my father i am not so much a son as i used to be and in a relationship with my son i am far more a father you know so like right. i yeah, yeah. That, that rings true and I, i'm not poetry guy but i do think that uh, donald justice makes uh takes a great advantage of like the first stanza being a relatively long single sentence. The second stanza being a relatively long single sentence. The third stanza is a long beginning of a sentence that bleeds into the fourth. And then just that that sentence, they are more fathers than sons themselves now. It's just line. on yeah. its own line. And yeah. I think that it highlights it as sort of the, 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 the center of the poem in an, an incredibly effective way, which allows the something is filling them something that is like the twilight sound of critics cr crickets immense again i don't have many frames of reference you know i like that mark strand poem the garden with that it shines it shines even though there's no like obvious antecedent to the it shining there yeah. there's nothing concrete that it's talking about but that that the it shines or the the something immense you know it's it's what little chandler is thinking about like does he have in him that like that it that poetic spirit that something um and it border like it borders on um saccharine in, in this poem mm -hmm. like the, yeah. that the something immense the crickets so then undercutting it with the fact that the house isn't only a house but it's a mortgaged house 
I think, takes a lot of the air out of the poem in an appropriately self-deprecating way. So I, I think this poem really works. I, I think that it's funny at the end and moving in the middle and gets you in the beginning. And I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah. And, and it, so, I mean, a couple of thoughts I had, because I think one, something you said in a previous conversation was that you, your feeling about poetry is not that you strongly like or dislike it, but rather that it is a pleasure that is slighter than the effort required to, to, you know, to receive it, to, yes, to get it there. Exactly. It's sort of like a, like a nut with more shell than meat. Exactly. Um, and that makes sense to me. And, and so thinking about this poem and all of the, all of the dumb little smart poetry thoughts I had walking around thinking about it uh, this morning, it occurred to me that, that this poem in particular is one that I liked the very first time I read it. I liked it more the second time I read it and I've come back to it, you know, and memorized it and thought about lines in it and had lines of it come back to me. It's a poem I enjoyed. And then I've thought about it and pulled it apart and tried to understand it in response to my enjoyment. But I think if you had to do it the other way around, it would be terrible. Yes. Yeah. No. That, that's that's very well said. Um. You you sent me a, a poem about. Uh, you've read it, I think, in one of the earlier episodes of Slee Ricketts. But it's um. The guy whose truck was on fire and he gets all pissed off about it. Yeah, Steve Scafidi. Who? who yeah, I feel like that. I feel like that has a similar um experience of reading the poem and you're like, oh, that's good and sort of meaningful and funny. And now let me try to understand it as opposed yeah. to needing to put the work in initially in order to understand it, in order to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So what what did I miss in my sort of layman's gloss? Like what what do you feel yeah, yeah. a real poetry person would, would understand or would be able to add to the conversation? Sure. There, I mean, I think there are a handful. I think your observation about the length of the sentences broken over the course of the stanzas is a, is a really apt one. Um, you know, I think that you're, you're right about the, the, the slight, the sort of, the, it's full of off rhymes, 40 softly landing, moving, mirrors, rediscover. Father and lather is maybe the best slant rhyme in English. Yeah, um, especially in that context, because it should work perfect. I mean, it should be a direct rhyme, but, but it's also it just differently in this. It, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's just yeah. so yeah. so spot. I mean, there there are wonderful things like there are a handful of moments where he doesn't need a word like denotatively, but he includes it for the sake of rhythm or sound, like the word there in the twelfth line. His father's. The face of the boy as he practices tying his father's tie in secret gives you all the same information, but there sort of breaks the leg of that line and slows it down. And it also picks up the the there of the father and lather. That's and then twilight um, in the uh, pre-antepenultimate line mm -hmm. is um, uh, is unnecessary because, of course, that's when crickets are make, make their sound. But it, it's one of those uh, fake spondies that's really a trochee that Joshua Megan talked about, and it slows down right. what would otherwise be too many galloping anapests in a row or dactyls, depending on how you break it. But then why doesn't the redundancy piss you off? Like, because it because the sound is just worth the just trade? Feels, it, because it just feels right. And I think it also helps that the poem's very slight and short anyway. That like, right. it, there's, there's so little happening that a little bit... like Because it's funny, I noticed the redundancy, but I yeah. thought it had something to do with making that moment almost falsely or too bigly poetic as i as i, I said think, earlier which is then you know gets undercut by the house being mortgaged i i wonder yeah. whether i think that's i think that's a that's a potential if i were to like point to potential soft spots in the poem that's one of them i think that the something is filling them something that is like the twilight sound of the crickets immense filling the woods at the foot of the slope so some, the thing that is filling them is like the sound of the crickets filling the woods and 
you know, the twilight, if anything, is sort of is doing double redundant work, yes. um, telling us both when crickets make their sounds and reminding us that this thing, if not being time, is something with that in its, you know, writing its tales, that this is time, you know, that, that the something filling them, unlike the something that Chandler hopes will fill him up, is not is not a poetic spirit, but is, I mean, is, is the is the the advance guard of death. Um, yeah. And then, you know, but then I think the other, the other soft spot, and it's one that I, I feel very ambivalent about is, as you pointed out, that second stanza, um, I think a couple, so, so you say like it, it's a moment where we feel we have a physical contact. That's nice. It's rather than just being visual or auditory images, it's a kinesthetic image. Sure. But um, why don't you cut but, it? Like, why, why don't you cut that second stanza? So, so I think, I think what, what it, it, I think. The, and again, for the listener, the second stanza is. Yeah. At rest on a stair landing, they feel it moving beneath them now, like the deck of a ship. Though the swell, the swell is, gentle. is gentle, right? So, so the 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 three thoughts I've had about that are one. And let, let me just sorry, I I, yeah, I want to read it without that stanza because it works. Men yeah. at forty learn to close softly the doors to rooms they will not be coming back to, and deep in mirrors they rediscover the face of the boy. Right, like that. Yeah, I think you know, I think I think it it works relatively well. I think you miss a step between the doors to rooms they will not be coming back to, as you said, is a very obvious um, metaphor that needs no explanation. But it is those doors are um, are metaphorical; they're not real doors. But then, as soon as we walk out of those doors onto the stair landing, they become sort of real doors. Yeah. And yeah. the stair landing, as you said, gives us a physical connection, a physical experience of what we will later realize is this mortgaged house that we're in. Um, and so it's this sort of, it, it's this middle ground between this totally metaphorical door and this totally real house. And the other thing I think it does, so part of what bothered me most about it is that it is the one um, alien image in the story or in the poem. Like the, the um, in, um, you know, Philip Larkin's This Be the Verse, Famously, or as Stephen Campo was the first to point out to me, includes uh, the in the last stanza, um, uh, man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Uh, get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. The coastal shelf in that poem is the only image that doesn't belong there, that's sort of pulled from a different landscape. And it exists purely in order to present us with a perfect rhyme for yourself at the end. So, so this is an alien image of a ship in here that is the only image in here that doesn't really belong to the suburban you know, milieu. But I think part of what I heard, part of what I've always taken that to be is literally a moment of slight imbalance, which, which precedes, you know, because we, the, the swell is gentle, right? The swell could be rough. It could be a big wave. It's a little wave. There's a slight, you know, foreshadowing of, you know, the loss of balance, the loss of steadiness that is going to come with age. But the other thing that occurred to me today is that it's one of these moments like in um, 90 North where the kid's imagining himself as an Arctic explorer uh, where it's the sort of thing a little boy would do, where he would like, maybe for the little boy, it was a, a like a, a pirate ship that was sailing the high seas. And now there's just a little echo of that boyish imagination left. I still think, you know, the fact that it is an alien image, it's the ship in there still feels a little odd to me. But then I do think that he does a really nice job landing the poem, so to speak, with, you know, he's standing on a deck that is tilting. And then at the end of the poem, we reach the woods at the foot of the slope. So we sort of we return yep. to that image of the feet standing on the on the slanted ground, um, even if it's in that case it's metaphorical, whereas before it was literal. Um, sure thing. And water yeah. comes back with the with the shaving as well later on. That it's yeah, not... and the and the filling, I guess, like the yeah the yeah, this, yeah filling up the the slope and the the men. Yeah, I 
I I just like the poem a lot, and I I find there's a you know I think like the 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 fact that the first two lines of most of the stanzas rhyme, and then the others don't rhyme. It gives yeah. and the, the, the stanzas get sort of wider as they go, and there's and then wider one after another gives you a sense of sort of form and, and perfection being lost over time. So there are some really nice formal things happening with it, but I also just mostly enjoy it. And then I find that pulling at it only enhances my pleasure in it. So you, you said in a, in a previous lyric, it's that um, something that bothered you in contemporary poetry is like a, a concrete image or something general. And then a final line that, is a non sequitur to something much bigger, you know, mm. like the I have wasted my life final right. line or yeah, yeah. other other poems like that. Is this the opposite of that in some ways? Is this like taking you down with the word mortgage to something so specific that it it shifts on you in a in a satisfying way? Or because in some ways it's the same trick. It's yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's taking a something from a it's taking language from a completely different register and putting it in the final line of a poem right exactly as, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. as a punch you know to the gut so is that is it a similar trick or an opposite trick or how do you feel about that as or is it not a trick is that too dismissive but it feels like a trick to me it feels like we're in sort of poetry language all the way until the penultimate word of the of the poem yeah mortgage is a yeah that's a huge word you i think what you said is basically right like the register of it is part of what startles us so much at the end it's business language it's mundane it's exactly the kind of thing that a little boy would never in a million years think of and that if maybe and it's 40 like, oh shit the guy's the 40 like it's not a theoretical poetic vessel it's this fucking thing that i'm in debt because of like right it, it, it makes and that and the mortgage like the the dead pledge the, to, to take it literally is like like just don't forget like if you right. fuck up and like if you right. drop dead right now don't worry the bank will get their money right <laughs> like, right um right. yeah no i i think i think that's the 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 register does an enormous amount of work there and i think you're right that he it is a you know sometimes like in workshops the the expression people use is is the ending is earned i think that's sort of an annoying expression but he uses the the pieces that he has brought into the poem in order to resolve it in i think a way that feels pretty satisfying it doesn't if it ended on the deck of the ship, I would feel a lot more unhappy about right, that right, intrusion. Right. Yeah, I, I just think it's a, it's one of those poems that I, part of, one, one of the reasons I come back to it, and then one of the reasons I, I, this is a poem I deeply and genuinely envy, is that so much of it feels inevitable, obvious. I mean, like, it's with that that opening, the doors to rooms they will not be coming back to, that it feels like, like, of course, this has always been a poem somebody wrote. Right, um, and right. It's just, I mean, Donald Justice at his best really wrote like that. That was my conversation with Brian. Uh, I will have links to everything that uh, came up in this week's episode in the show notes, as always. And again, uh, an announcement coming next week. I was going to make it this week, but some things came up. So announcement to come next week uh, that (laughs) will either (laughs) thrill or irritate uh, any of you who have bothered to listen this far into the episode. Uh, In any case, thank you so much, as always, for listening. You can reach me at Ricketts on Twitter and at sleerickets at gmail.com by email uh, and Brian as well as as, uh, at B Platzer on Twitter and Alice is at poetry underscore says on Twitter and she sometimes as as uh, Ethan McGuire said thank you Ethan uh, truly the number one super fan of Sleerickets truly like I mean just outstrips all the competition but 
uh, Ethan said that Alice should be made a, a, a co-host of Slee Ricketts, or at least an unofficial one. And so uh, here, I, I hereby name Alice Allen a co-host of Slee Ricketts, official, unofficial, or otherwise. Uh, thank you all again. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.